Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, I don't think it's just me, but it feels like change and uncertainty have been in the air for the last few months and it's just getting thicker and thicker. I think overall for everyone in the world, or at least most people in tech and fintech and finance, but it also, it just feels like anytime I talk to any fraud fighters or people in payments, there's this uncertainty. There's this, it's one of a couple of things. One, it's, you know, I'm not sure if I'm where I need to be. COVID kind of helped me just the whole experience of COVID, not necessarily contracting it, but the whole experience of the last two years that we've all collectively shared has changed priorities for some people and help people see that they want maybe something different or there's, you know, less time at work and more time with family or more flexibility or they want fully remote or they just don't feel like the company is aligned with them or that the job is aligned with them anymore. Uh, We've all gone through some significant changes over the last few years. And so I think I wrote this on my LinkedIn the other day that I feel like a lot of us have run out of survival mode and now we're just tired. But then also I'm hearing from people who are justifiably nervous about the uncertainty of the economy globally, how that might impact fraud. On the merchant side, sometimes fraud detection and prevention departments. And this is True on the fintech side too, but not as much on the banking side for different reasons. But oftentimes fraud prevention is seen as a cost center, even though we know that we save a significant amount of money. And if we're doing it right, we're also increasing orders and and sales as well. So that is uncertain. And then for those on the vendor side, just seeing more layoffs. And there's been layoffs on the merchant and financial institution side too, but it seems like lately it's it's been more vendor related. And I think there's just a lot of uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, we can either freeze and kind of be paralyzed. And that is fair, though, you know, as You'll hear we talk about with my guests today. We recommend maybe doing that for a little bit, like a day or two, and then trying to step into some action. But even if you're not feeling that uncertainty, I think one common question or issue that we all face throughout our careers is just what's next or what's right for me or, you know, what are other people doing here or there? And so I thought it'd be really good to invite my friend PJ Rohal back. PJ was on episode 30, which was way back in on June 3rd of 2021. That uh, feels so long ago now that we're on episode 115. I believe PJ joined me for episode 30 to talk about the title of that episode was Fighting Fraud and Fighting Stigma. And we talked about just dealing with mental health and how that's so important. And especially during that time, there are a lot of people struggling with mental health more than ever. I mean, some people were struggling with mental health issues for the first time in their lives. For me and and for PJ, that hasn't been the case. But so we, you know, had learned some things and, and shared some of what had worked for us. And similarly, we've both had careers in fraud prevention for over a decade each. And I think, you know, a little more than that for each of us, but I think there's a lot that we've learned. And as I've heard more and more people asking questions about their career path from, should I get a certification? Is that going to help me stand out? Or is that going to help me get another job? Should I go back to university or college? Where's an area I should study? All the way to, how do I know if I should stay or leave the company that I'm in or the role that I'm in? There's just lots of things like that that we struggle with. And so I asked PJ to join me and I I think this was a really good conversation. I always enjoy speaking with PJ. We actually spoke on stage with each other back at the Marketplace Risk Summit in May in San Francisco, and that was really fun to get to see each other in person again. But he's now at Sion, who is also, you know, currently the sponsor of the podcast, and we very much appreciate their sponsorship. But this isn't just like Sion. They don't want 
episodes to be very salesy. And so this really isn't a a pitch for them at all. I mean, he will share towards the end why he chose the company he did. And hopefully that can help you when you're choosing your next role and employer. But other than that, it's really just an open and honest conversation about some of our best career advice and suggestions and some of the things we've learned along the way. And remember lessons and feedback and all that. They don't often come from successes. They come from failures. And I've had my share. I shared a lot more about my specific career path in a couple of episodes way at the beginning of Fraudology, way before the my conversation with BJ last June on episodes 11 and 12 of the podcast. I don't even necessarily remember what I said, but I know that it was important to me to share like my career path warts and all, so to speak, and just be really honest because all that glitters is not gold, my friends. And sometimes people assume that I, life for me has been <laughs> flawless and perfect and that I've never made a mistake and that it couldn't be further from the truth. So I think that if that's interesting to you and you're wondering a couple of things I reference in this episode or whatever, you can definitely go back and listen to those if you didn't already. But, you know, I'm going to stop talking so that you can listen in on PJ and I's conversation today because I really think there's a lot to take away no matter where you are in your career and what part of the ecosystem and fraud fighting you are in now and, and that you want to be in. And I am just excited to hear from you. If there's a question that you want to ask myself and or PJ about anything that we talk about here, let me know. I can always have him back or I can try to answer it on another Ask Carice Anything episode. But with that, I'm going to let you listen in on this conversation with my friend PJ. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small, oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, PJ Rohel, I am so glad to have you back at Fraudology. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I hope I did a good enough job in the first time that I got invited back. So I did. Thank you so much for having me. Of course you did. Of course you did. And last time we talked primarily about the importance of just protecting our mental health as fraud fighters. And that's something you and I have had our own journeys on in different ways. And we know others do too. And this is kind of a tangential topic as well. I mean, because really mental health and, and career path and the decisions we make in our career and the companies and jobs that we have really do impact our mental health, whether we start off with excellent mental health or we're neurodiverse. You know, for me, it's depression, anxiety and ADHD. And for you, I know you've been very open about your OCD and anxiety. And so Absolutely. whether, yeah, and I appreciate that because I've said many times, I'll say it again, like it's because of your courage in 
talking about that publicly that I felt like that was something I needed to do, do as well. But I feel like whether you start off without those things or with them, there's always times when we have, we're just not sure. And now more than ever is a time of uncertainty. And so I thought that you were the perfect person to talk to about this for a few reasons. And we'll talk about those as we go. But as a starting place, I know we talked a little bit about your career path when you were here last, but for people who may not know you or your background, can you share where your career in fraud has led you and was any of that planned ahead? Yeah, absolutely. And to, I mean, to your initial point, yeah, we all have adversity. It doesn't mental health, whatever it is. And kind of talking to people that are in your network and your family, friends, and getting very specific advice or just kind of understanding that, man, they're going through it too, can be really helpful. So more in the career path thing, geez, where did I start? I graduated in 05, which is seems forever ago. And I studied finance, which is not what I do now. So I worked in finance for a couple of years, actually went to Manhattan and had a significant bout with anxiety and OCD where I had to come home. I had to kind of go back to square one and figure out what the hell was going on with my brain. And fortunately, I had a great family, great support system and kind of was able to work on managing that a bit better. But when I did, it was like, hey, you should probably get a job. You went to a university, you learned a lot of things. And so I took a job as a fraud analyst at a company called eBay Enterprise. It was previously GSI Commerce, acquired by eBay the previous spring. I started the fall of 2011. So that was that was my start. I had no idea about fraud. I had no idea how to investigate orders, any of the things that I know a lot more about today. And I started as an analyst, worked up as a you know senior analyst, supervisor, and kind of just learned fraud ops, which I think was a great place to learn because that's where a lot of frontline fraud fighters are. There's some cool investigative kind of, you're solving cases, but there's also some really challenging moments and working through peak seasons, which are really have a lot of volume and trying to hit numbers of productivity and stuff. So I can kind of relate a little bit more with folks, whether they're working with merchants or banks or whoever, but I, I love doing that. And then I was trying to decide where did I want to go next? Where were my skills best aligned? What companies and industries would, would I want to do that with? And I moved to a company called Feature Space on the solution provider side and was there the last four years, learned a lot from a team of other fraud SMEs. People have been in the industry, worked on the fraud ops side. I hadn't been exposed to much to banking at that point. So I learned a lot from that, about the banking environment and those fraud use cases. And then I actually skipped the founding of About Fraud. So right about a year before I moved to PGR Space, I co-founded About Fraud, which is a global community for fraud fighters. So I had some entrepreneurial spirit, apparently, where I wanted to kind of go do something kind of on my own, but with Ronald Pradish, who's a co-founder. And we developed this because we thought there was a gap in the market for educational resources. And we were trying to make sense of solution providers. So we developed the solution providers page. So that was a very cool thing that I'm I'm still doing today and is kind of grown in a way that I couldn't have imagined. So doing feature space for four years, then I moved recently about two and a half months ago to a company called Sion, also on the solution provider side, different type of solution. And as I said, I'm still doing about fraud. So it was a weird winding path of confusion and uncertainty and not really knowing where I wanted to fit in. And I think that continues in your career to a point, but I do feel like I'm at a point now that I, I'm so happy kind of how it unfolded. But if you asked me 10, 15 years ago, I, I would have said I, would, I wouldn't have felt as comfortable for sure. So much there, I hope, is relatable to a lot of people. And I think that through your answer, you answered the second part, which was, did you plan any of this ahead of time? And I think that most of us in fraud don't. I mean, in part because we don't totally know what's going to be available in three, five, ten years, but also because... You know, it, I think that we recognize it's an emerging industry for the same reasons. But I do think that like you hit kind of a mid-career point or for me, it was about four or five years in where I was like, OK, I'm going to kind of think about what do I enjoy doing and, and what do I want to do more of? And and that wasn't without its stumbles and, and its you know issues as well. But, you know, when you think about career paths for fraud fighters in general, because it is so different than career paths for industries that have been around for so much longer, do you see more of more linear? and or set path for career planning within this space? Or is it more choose your own adventure? Yeah, 
My answer was so long, I forgot there was a second part of that question. That's okay. So, no, you answered it. I mean, it, it was wasn't, like, and that leads into this. So <laughs> yeah. I, I chose my own adventure, but I do think it, it depends on where you are. I think it's a young industry. So when you're starting out, most people don't go to school for fraud prevention. So you fall into it accidentally. And when I started, it's probably not that much different now. There's people who had all kinds of different degrees who didn't have degrees, people, but they were smart, they were curious, they were eager to learn, and they found it interesting. So they gave it a shot, right? So hopefully as we progress, we're finding more ways to funnel people into the industry. And it doesn't have to be through universities, but just in a way to say, hey, there's this huge industry out there that is not going away. And if you want to learn a lot and be motivated, be curious and have all kinds of career options, think about considering this because when I, I did not have that on my radar. But once I think you get your kind of feet wet and you're, you do need to be a little bit more structured with what you want to do. It's, it doesn't have to say, I, I want to be a data scientist or I want to be in investigations. It's what do you like? What don't you like? What are you good at? Maybe what are you not so good at? And then find tasks or responsibilities and potentially job. You can kind of work your way into things that align with that. I also think finding what can help is finding mentors that you respect and learn from because like that can be in your company, outside your company that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but I didn't even know enough about the options to know what was out there. Right. So I had, I had to talk to people who were doing things before I joined feature space. I didn't know if fraud SMU was even a thing. So it was like, I finally talked to people and, and learned from other people that this is, this is what some other people are doing and, and, you, and you can go down this path. So don't be afraid to, to ask for some help. Admit that you don't really know exactly what your next step is because a lot of us don't, but you'd like to start defining that. That's the most important thing that you, you do want to start defining that and kind of start following some type of path. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. I feel like in previous generations, and I think we're very lucky, I consider myself very lucky that I am in this generation. A lot of people have a job just to have a job. And I still have friends that have that and they have full lives. But for me, I need to really be engaged and enjoy my job and be challenged. And I've over the years kind of found what I like and I don't like by trying different things. And to your point about finding what you enjoy doing and what you're good at, there's this book that I admittedly have never read the whole thing, but I've read lots of parts of it and done a couple exercises in it once as a part of like a retreat type thing. And then on my own, and it's the book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, which is not, I don't have an S at the end of my name, so no relation, but he really shares a few different things about taking a new leap, et cetera. And one of the exercises I did from there that really changed my mindset about my goals and what I wanted to do was what he calls finding your zone of genius. So I literally just take a piece of paper and fold it into four quadrants. And one quadrant is your zone of incompetence. That's easy. You aren't good at it. For me, that's details. We all have, we all yes, have yes, yes. For me, it's like administrative things. I'm just not good at them. Then you have your zone of competence where you can do it okay. For me, that's like Excel or something like that. You know I mean? I can do it. Can I do it better than most people? No, but you know, capable of it. And then there's your zone of excellence, which is you're really good at it and oftentimes better than most people, but it doesn't light you up. It's not, it's not your thing, right? It doesn't just make you excited. And then there's your zone of genius. And the zone of genius is something that not only are you better at it than most people, but it lights you up. It makes you feel like you have a purpose and an impact. And for me, I have to be in my zone of genius. And when I did that and I realized, oh, this is why I'm not feeling super happy because most of the things I'm doing, this the second part of that activity can be putting in everything from your, your own job right now, right? Which ones are you doing? Where does each one of the tasks in your job fit in that quadrant? Like doing a separate one. And I realized most of the things I'm doing right now are in my zone of competence or excellence. No wonder I'm feeling kind of bleh and stagnant. So I've been working over the last two years to try to switch that a little bit and working on this podcast and having sponsors like your new company, uh, your new employer, Sion, for Fraudology has really really allowed me to do that as well as other things and changes I've made in my business. So for me, that really helped on that. I don't know if you did anything similar or if you just kind of picked it up along the way a little more unofficial, well, but just as important. Yeah, not as structured, but I think that's a cool idea. But it was it was similar. So it's like I loved being in fraud ops initially and kind of going mainly to understand the pain points, understand the business problems, understand where technology could make it easier, processes and procedures. But like 
I wasn't the most amazing fraud analyst as an investigator. Like I could find some connections and I thought I was pretty good. I tried really hard. So that always helps me out. But like there were some people who would come up to my desk and start like pointing things out. I'm like, how do you know all of this? <laughs> so clearly they had something that was a little, their brain was connecting dots. So mine wasn't. And they, they seemed to really enjoy that, that hunt too. So mm. there was a point where I was like, oh, okay. So maybe this is, doesn't light me up. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to get into analytics, but I, I really like product. I thought the product and the product value seemed really interesting. And then once I got into about fraud, I was like, oh, so there's some entrepreneurial kind of, I want to kind of build my own thing and grow it. And like that, that that's cool. So like it was, and I can still stay in the industry doing that. Yeah. I just think there's, you, you got to find those things and try your very best. And our brains are awful at this, but we tend to focus on the, the negatives, whatever, mm. those things and say, I can't do that. And all these other people are able to do that. And then you look at your, your great things and you're like, you minimize. You're like, yeah, that's not that hard. Anybody can do that. You mentioned admin tasks. I actually be pretty good at admin tasks. I have a little little organization OCD thing where it, it kind of goes a little far. But like, I'm, well, yeah, anybody can do that. And it's like, well, maybe not anybody can do that. So like, don't minimize what you mm. think is not all that important and don't overemphasize something you might not be as good at because that's okay too. I'm so glad you said that because absolutely, I think I only know the female experience, but I feel like a lot of women and female fraud fighters especially are really good at minimizing what we're good at and assuming like, oh, everybody else is. And um, I have this conversation a lot with female fraud fighters. I'm like, actually, no, I know a lot of people and you're one of the best at this or it's it just, it's something that's really important. And actually there was a another task or exercise that was suggested in the first F4 retreat, the Fearless Female Fraud Fighter retreat last year, which was asking your coworkers and your bosses, like, so if you don't know that on your own, you can even do an anonymous survey, right? In Google so that they don't feel pressure and you don't feel pressure and just say, Hey, this would really help me. Like if I don't, if you don't know what you're good at, or you know, maybe you know what you enjoy, but you don't know if you're good at it, asking friends and coworkers to weigh in on that in kind of an informal way, rather than like your annual review or whatever. I know that helped one particular fraud fighter who went for a significant promotion at her very large company and got it. And it was a lot. She credits that doing that because she just kind of she'd been in the same role for several years and she liked it. So that's that's one thing. And I think additionally, the other thing I would say is don't tell yourself no too often or too much. I think especially those of us in fraud fighting are so risk adverse and I am not advocating for everyone to start their own business. I made a lot of errors and I've been very open about the fact that like if had I not had a part-time job, essentially, as my first client, I wouldn't have been able to sustain the business for those first several years, but also have a partner that has a stable job and good benefits. But you started about fraud as kind of the side hustle that now you still put just as much time and effort into, into it. I'm always impressed by the resources that you and Ronald create and provide. But you know, don't think that something isn't possible just because you aren't sure how you'll get paid. I was just talking to someone who I really respect in the industry who is just feeling burnout. And after COVID, feeling like their priorities have shifted and they love the company they work for, but they just feel like they want to spend more time with their child, their children. And then also just seeing changes and, and maybe just not feeling as happy as they were at the beginning of their, their current role. And I said, well, have you thought about freelancing? Because what you do, I mean, they're not necessarily in fraud ops on the merchant side. They're more on the vendor side. But I'm like, what you do is a rare skill for someone who understands fraud as well as you do. And I know people will pay you for that because I'm asked for that sometimes. And I say no, because it's not in my, my zone of competence slash maybe excellence, depending on who you're asking. And they were like, oh, I didn't even know that was possible. And I can say the same thing about getting paid, you know, having sponsorships for a podcast or or doing educational speaking or training or webinars or things like that. Like there can often be more ways to it. And I'm not saying that like, I'm not saying that everyone needs to start their own company tomorrow. That's not it at all. But don't just tell yourself no before you even explore it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, you don't know what's out there. So you don't yeah. know what you don't. And that's pretty normal. And you'll probably stumble along something if you keep your mind open and options open that you didn't even know existed. Yes. Or you'll be doing something that... and. 
and you're sitting here now, like, I need to know, I need to know. It might just not be possible, but keep your open-minded. And the one thing about listening to people, I think that's great because our minds tend to be very negative about our own abilities. But listen to people you trust and respect because mm. there's lots of people. Well, there are people out there who might say, I don't think you can do that. Or maybe that's not best for you. So just try to have a, a vetting system of who you're of who you're listening to. Such good advice. And I, yeah, a lot of times when people tell you no, it's out of their own fears because they, you know, they don't know how they could do it or they don't know how it's because they want the best for you and they want to protect you. But it, at the same time, if you, the other piece that I heard you say that I agree with too, is not listening to opinions from people that you wouldn't ask for advice from. Right. So I've had bosses throughout the years that have told me I, belong behind the stage. And I and I believed that for a really long time, that my job was to make the people on the stage smarter. And I'm fine with that. I don't need the spotlight. But when I no. started to take steps that I was like, no, actually, I'm pretty good here. And then when I think about it, I held myself back a lot because of that for more years than I probably should have. And at the same time, I wouldn't have gone to those bosses and asked them for any personal advice or anything. So why did I let that impact me? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And and on the flip side, if you have somebody you respect, if they yes. say something, oh my gosh, that that really resonates. I had an old, old boss, Matt Shaw at Radial, and he told me one point, he's like, dude, I love the way your brain works. And it was such a side <laughs> comment. I was thinking of some weird, I thought, creative article that we were going to do, blah, <laughs> blah, blah. I was just kind of thinking outside the box, but like, I was not always excited about how my brain works. So hearing that, just a side mm. comment that I respected was like, Oh, okay. So it's okay that my brain kind of goes off to these somewhat creative areas. And that probably helps me in areas like about fraud, other areas I just kind of jump into. So anyways, you just know who's telling you these things. You know? Yes, yes. Know who you are and know and take the advice from who it is, right? If you trust them and you know that they'll refer lie to you and they, and they care about you and, and they want what's best for you, then listen to the advice. But also, I think there's also a lot of privilege and responsibility that comes with being a boss or an industry leader. I try to go out of my way to compliment people on things that I see them being good at because I hope that they'll believe me and maybe they won't believe, you know, their imposter syndrome or maybe they believe their imposter syndrome more, but maybe it'll sink in sometimes. And I, I try to be aware of that responsibility as well. Yeah. So there are so many different areas of fraud prevention available these days. And we've kind of talked a little bit about it, but, you know, it kind of goes from all the way from who you work for, right? If you're a vendor, if you're a merchant, if you're a bank, if you're a marketplace, a consultancy, a government agency, et cetera, to what you do, product management, operations, people management, data analytics, sales, marketing, manual review, chargeback represent strategy, et cetera. There's a lot more things that are available to do than certainly when I started, which it was just kind of like you're an analyst or you're a people manager. <laughs> now, a lot of fraud departments have grown so much. So how did you decide which area of the industry you wanted to focus on? Yeah, recurring theme here by accident in the beginning. Oh, I need to work for a merchant or a bank. I was like, oh, eBay Enterprise. That sounds, right. I've heard of eBay. Fraud. <laughs> it seems like a real job that I could learn some cool stuff at. But I will say like kind of initially, I, I was leaning more towards like being like a practitioner to start to understand fraud ops. And because then when you get to the technology side, you get to whatever you're doing, product management, selling, marketing, you understand the pain points a little bit better. And you sat there and you've gotten the customer call where their kids thing was canceled for Christmas and because it was fraud and they were buying, buying five PlayStations. And it's like, why are you buying five PlayStations? You know, anyways, so like you, you've gone through those those things. But then as you grow in your role, you find the things you like. It goes back to you, find things you like you don't like what you're good at, what you're not good at. And then you can probably find industries and then groups that fit better for you. So I, I like product, I like product management, I like the understanding the features of the different products we have in the tech and the data and how that helped our analytics rules and then how, how that helped our manual review process and how to streamline the case management. All that just seemed really cool to me. Like, that interested me more than getting deeper into investigations or writing the rules or getting into data science. So I like that. And then when I got into more on the feature space side, I liked, I was working with salespeople being a product and we kind of talking about the fraud challenges and in commercial meetings and and doing marketing things. So so I, I came with that knowledge and that expertise, but I, I wasn't a marketer. I wasn't a salesperson, but I, I like doing that. I like speaking to people. I liked uh, speaking at conferences. So, okay, that's where I went. So that kind of comes back to, I wasn't 
I wasn't saying, you know, solution provider or merchant or bank. I wasn't saying within there, within the industries, merchant banking, insurance, it was starting out, kind of getting a good foundation of fraud knowledge, and then kind of seeing where my skill set would take me within the industry. Because as you said, there's lots of choices, there's lots of options. There's information overload probably in the, in the number of options, but you kind of got to figure out where, where you fit in best. Yeah, that reminds me of, you know, I was talking with a friend that used to work at Facebook many years ago and they shared that Cheryl Sandberg, and I don't know if this is in her book or not. It probably is. I haven't read it, full disclosure, but look, Cheryl Sandberg once spoke at a company town hall talking about your career as a playground and how she thought it was important to take turns on different, not toys, but like, I guess maybe that's the word, but like go on swings for a little bit and a slide for a little bit and this and that to be well-rounded. So an example of that would be maybe we've picked the playground of fraud prevention or maybe even more specifically banking fraud prevention or merchant fraud prevention or the vendor side of fraud technology and then picking being an analyst for a little bit and then this and then that, et cetera. I think it was a good way of looking at it. And within, once you're halfway through your career, you've got a really well, maybe you were an analyst and then you were in product and then you were a people manager and then you were this, you've got all these different viewpoints of the the playground, so to speak, and different experiences that you can build on and, and be better each new obstacle or role yeah. that you take on. Yeah. And you can feel like a jack of all trades master. And I get that. I felt like, that. <laughs> right. like what you spend enough time in the industry and you learn enough you're a master of understanding fraud in the industry and the use cases and the challenges and the products and the tech and the data. So like, it depends on kind of what you're saying. If you're saying, I need to be an analyst, a data scientist, a product manager, a salesperson, a marketer, like, yeah, like. No, right. Yeah, no, I mean. Obviously, this goes with our previous advice too, right? Obviously, if you if you really don't enjoy one part of that, don't get on the slide, right? Like, I mean, it's within, but I think the point was you don't have, these days, you don't have to just, in quotation marks, be the same thing all the time. There are some people who love that, who love being cogs in a wheel and have their day be the same every day. We need those people in this world. I am actually have a lot of respect for those people. I'm not one of them, but I have a lot of respect for them. Some people are happy just using this analogy, like being on the swings for their entire 40, 50 years of working. That's not me, but it was kind of, you know, like building it because you get to see different sides. For me, it was going from the processor side to the merchant side gave me so much advantage when I became a merchant. For you, being on kind of that practitioner side of things is a huge advantage on the vendor side. We see that. I see that often where, and I have used this analogy many times, but I think it's just so true where you've actually driven the car, right? Like when to put your foot on the gas versus the brake, how soon to, or what the air conditioning is like, or if there's a little way you have to jiggle the, I don't know, the turn signal, whatever, right? You know the specifics of driving the car versus a lot of people that work on the vendor side that have read the owner's manual and they understand how the car works. And both sides have very unique sets of knowledge that will inform the other side. But because you've been able to do both, you're such an asset because you do understand what it's like to be at the merchant level. Yeah. And then you can, you can kind of empathize with the, the tougher situations and trying to get the budget for investment and yes. the real life of having to clear the cues and blah, blah, blah. So like it can sound nice and shiny if you're just kind of pitching the from a high level. And, and then you also, if you're out of the front lines for a while, I also have enough kind of respect and understanding that there's things that have, that I haven't done. Right. So you defer to probably frontline fraud fighters who are, who can give you that feedback and you can say, Hey, I read in this report that this was going like this. You can validate, you can mm-hmm. check it. Cause like, yeah. Anyway, I, I definitely agree with what you said there for sure. I think that too often we think that we need to know everything. And I actually love fraud prevention because we don't know everything and there's always something new to learn and having that humility. I certainly could never have this podcast or work with the companies I do or speak at the events I do if I didn't have such a wealth of knowledge within my network. You are very much part of that. There are others as well. There are some people I go to often. I try to mix it up, but you know, also I'm so lucky to have merchants who are on the ground saying, Hey, this is what we're going through right now, or this is what we're seeing. I'm grateful for that. And that helps me because I could never do any of this on my own. And I know you feel the same way that I think the people who think that they know everything are the ones that at some point in their career stopped learning. And we just can't do that in this, in this industry, in some industries, 
not much changes, but this changes so much. And every company has different experiences and every just there's just so many differences. We need to be okay with not knowing everything. Completely. I know we're along on this topic, but one more thing. It makes me think like taking out Trump eventually, you look at managers and execs and people who get that level. They don't know everything that's hmm. going on. Responsibility is delegating, understanding who to go to when they need to kind of not like the master expert of this. You're you're not smart enough or successful enough. It's are you able to kind of understand what you're good at and then leverage other people for what for what they're good at? That's a skill. It, it, you could be a boss or you can just be networking and say, Frank McKenna, man, he knows banking mm. fraud inside and out. I could lie and pretend like I know auto lending fraud as good as he does, but that would be stupid. Like I'll pass you to him and they'll yeah. be very happy. That reflects positively on you that you didn't just make something up and pretend like you know what you're talking about. You were just like, that person knows more than I do. That's just the way it is. Like, mm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just kept hearing that very tired phrase. It's not, I mean, especially for entrepreneurs, it's not my favorite because it's been used so much, but your network is your net worth. Have uh, you heard yeah. that one before? Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> you, you hadn't heard that before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, I'm glad for that. Maybe I've just heard it too much. I think for me, I don't like seeing my network as dollar signs. So that's a challenge for me. But I think that the one reason why I don't like that phrase, but the reason I do is because it really is, it shows the value of a network. I'm, I feel like I'm nothing without my network. And that's probably not entirely true, but. Like taking all the credit, like you're, you're humble, you're appreciative. That's, I mean, I guess it goes without saying maybe from you and I, that's how you should approach it. Now, other people might not do it that way. Right. So, so that, but that's, but I'm yeah, also grateful to be in other people's networks and be considered their phone a friend lifeline. Right. So it goes both ways. Yeah. So switching a little bit, but not too much. A question that I often receive from fraud fighters, usually within the first 10 to 15 years of their career is questions about career development and preparation. So they'll ask about certifications or sometimes consider going back to university for more secondary education or they'll ask for books to read, resources to look up. I mean, obviously about fraud, et cetera. But what recommendations do you have when fraud fighters ask you these types of questions? Yeah, I'll hit the certification one first. That's, yeah, most I mean, common. I myself that <laughs> day. And, but so I, I think it is, it can be good for some roles. However, there's definitely not a magic formula around it. So I think it's an educational tool and there's other educational tools and if it can help you grow your knowledge. That's what educational tools should do and hopefully grow your career. But that's kind of one lever to pull if it's right for you. But I do think a lot of knowledge can be learned on the job and, and from your peers. So that's where I learned a lot of a lot of mine, engaging with folks in my company, uh, also outside, not networking just to say, hey, I, I know that person, but to actually learn from them. And that was most applicable for the work I was doing because it was very specific. I was on the job. It was exactly what I need to do. So yeah, the, that, that certifications and then areas you can learn. You mentioned websites that that's great. Podcasts, I'm on one right now. Blogs, white papers, webinars, like there's all kinds of digital resources you can have mm -hmm. to think. I mean, as much as you can find opportunities in person, you don't have to go to a million conferences a year or join working groups or things like that. But like, I do think there's something about being able to talk to somebody and having time to sit down and, and, and be with them. I mean, if, if it's at work, great. That, that's an obvious one. But if you can go outside of your network and and expand in person and yeah, it's going to it's going to take a case by case basis. So it's, it's that annoying, depends answer. But hopefully there's enough examples of things there that are, are levers you can pull and then just go go with the ones that kind of fit your life, fit your job, fit where you can travel, where you can't travel, fit your personality. You might not want to talk to 7,000 people at a conference because that's just <laughs> not you. Right. Uh, you might want to take some time and just read some information and not be annoyed by people. So yeah, that's my I totally agree. I think there isn't really an all-encompassing certification for fraud prevention. I mean, obviously, if you you know enjoy internal fraud and, and that type of thing, or if you really want a certification, I think the most common one in online fraud prevention, whether it's on the banking side or the merchant side or all marketplaces, fintech, et cetera, et cetera, you know, on like the prevention and detection side of fraud, the ACFE is most common. I'm the certified fraud examiner. Well, I guess ACFE is the association, but certified fraud examiner, CFE certification. But 
from what I understand, and I haven't studied for it or taken it, but you know, a lot of it is focused or most of it is focused on internal and, you know, embezzlement fraud, which is so important, but just may not be a one-to-one for what you do. I think, yeah, that on-the-job training, as well as looking at beefing up those other skills, right? So if, if you want to be in product management, if that's what you really enjoy is the product side of things, maybe take a couple of courses or you'll get certification in product. If you really love data analysis, make sure you know SQL really well and all the other tools that are important. If you are interested in AML, I just had Stephen Sargent on who's doing AML and compliance in crypto and Web3, which is really fascinating. Those types that you can get your AML certification or you can whatever. Those I think are more important than just learning fraud. I think fraud on the job, as well as obviously like the book, Practical Fraud Prevention. I had Shoshana and Galit on there, the authors of that book. I highly recommend it. I, I mean, I cannot tell you how many people have told me that that's become like their new Bible. There was one merchant that actually just mentioned to me yesterday that she took that book on vacation with her. And Jajana thought it was so funny. She's like, I've never pictured that book as a vacation read. And I said, well, that's a nerd alert if I've ever heard one, but that's a great resource. But and I mean, I try to make this podcast good about fraud, obviously has amazing resources as well. And links to resources, links to conferences. I, whenever people ask me what conferences they should go to, depending on who they are, I might have one or two off the top of my head, but then I say, go look at the list on about fraud. So, you know, those types you know, of things. You couldn't create all the good content. So we link out to a lot of it too. Yeah. Link to your Frank's, oh. Frank on Frank blocks. Cause it's like, you, you need an army of people to create all this yourself, but there's lots mm-hmm. of people who try to organize a lot of it in a way that made sense. But yeah, because there, there's a lot of resources, but you know, if you're not in the industry, you don't, you know, you're not going to stumble upon Frank on fraud just by, you know, <laughs> so like you just kind of need to be alerted to some of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you guys have created a really good hub for that. And that is very, it's almost as important, if not more important than just going out and finding one resource. It's knowing what else is out there. So actually, just as in, I'm going to say the same thing pretty much as you said, but this is true. Like the other side of the coin, I think to kind of more of those hard skills is more what we often refer to as soft skills, just as important, just like career development is important. Personal development is really important, at least to me. And I think it should be to a lot of people. What books, concepts, resources, et cetera, have been helpful to you as you've built and improved, you know, more of those soft skills for your career in fraud? Yeah. So I can't think of any books. I probably don't read enough books, but I it's okay. Concept. It's okay. Not to put you on the spot. Just what's worked for you. Yeah. What's been helpful yeah. to you? So a couple, I guess, principles, things that were harder for me and then I learned and, and really helped me in my career. So like a soft skill can be like communication is broad, but like communicating with senior management, mm. That's maybe your peers. There's a different kind of way. Maybe you need to express yourself or explain your ideas. And I mean, if, going back to the fraud team days, there's all kinds of interesting fraud cases you can talk about and how and when and 7,000 details. And I do that, but like what matters to them? What are, if you're working in a business, what are, what are the selling points that they care about? I am very guilty of more information than probably is needed. And the thing is, I do understand when I listen to people, I don't retain all that information. I'm listening for some key points. Who are you talking to? And just how to, how to do that? Cause that, that could take practice. It can be intimidating. It can be nervous. It can be like, did they like this? Don't they like this? And it's, that's not a thing that I think you, it, it needs to be developed, I guess. And then also, and this can, this is any job, but working with different personalities. So it can be, again, it can be anywhere, but like that can help you in management, that can help you as an investigator, that can help you in any, any role, because immediately we tend to just not react well when we don't understand someone's perspective. And one thing that helped me is like their perspective is legitimately their reality. It's not what you think is reality. It's not what you're right. Mm-hmm. But trying a space of mind to to not give in and say, okay, we'll do it your way, but to just let it breathe a little bit and have a constructive conversation. So that's good for trying to push forward ideas that you want to do within your department, pushing forward for just to keep your sanity with certain people in your department. So like, and it's, it, it's much easier said than done, but like that can, that can really deescalate things and help you just, so I'll, I'll say those two things and resources. Some of this I learned from, and, and I said this before, it, mentors and other people, like they don't need to be some structured mentor. You're my mentor or meet that, that can mm-hmm. be good. But if you see somebody who you respect and kind of handle these situations, just pick their brain. And if you can, open up that, you know, I'm not as good at this, this type of stuff, these soft skills. I'm great at, yeah, I have these soft skills that are good, but like, listen, I'm not great at communicating with senior management. I, it just, it just goes south, right? Like, so 
how do we practice these things? Your community, the F4, is that what it's called? Yeah. That's the cool thing where like, you know, I imagine I, I'm not in it as shockingly as a man, but I, I imagine you guys talk about like, not exactly like, how are you solving the strong place? It's like, how do you, how do you develop skills and make steps and take actions that are just really hard for you for whatever reason? So like, mm-hmm. anyways, yeah, there is some no, I mean, just to kind of add on that just a little bit, not not a ton. I mean, I think you really encompass that a lot. I think, yeah, you're learning from others, whether they are an official mentor or not. I mean, I wish I could take on, you know, a lot of official mentors, um, but or mentees, I guess I should say. Then again, I mean, I think there are a lot of really great people to learn from as well. But, you know, whether you've met them or not, right? There are some mentors I've had that I've never actually met them, but I've read their books or I've followed their career. One person that comes to mind is Kara Swisher. I mean, it's kind of a little tangential. I don't, we're not in the same industry at all, but she's, you know, a technology writer and has really made a career for herself by understanding technology and talking about it to other people and explaining things that are difficult in an easy way. She went into media, even though she also was in technology at first. And so she's went on to create conferences and podcasts and whatnot. You know, those type of things, right? So I still learn from her on that. There are others. I try to really, I try to be very self-reflective, but it helps me to sometimes just talk it out with other people. I'm an external processor, as I've heard said. So basically I like to talk a lot, but that's how I process information. So sometimes I just need to talk it out, but I also need to listen. So I think obviously the biggest book I would recommend for anyone who's just not sure is The Big Leap. I think that's really kind of become a manual for that. But there's so many other books out there that have been very helpful to me and to others as well. And I'm just kind of brain blinking on some of them. But it also depends on what you want to improve, right? Like if you, when I was really struggling with my imposter syndrome, I read this book called You Are a Badass. And it sounds really kind of cheesy. And I don't like cheesy, feel good, like, ooh, you can do it, personal development stuff. But it was just the right amount of sarcasm with some wisdom. So I enjoyed it and it and it helped me. And there's others too. So yeah, finding what it is you want to work on or what you feel like you need to learn. The one thing I want to definitely like highlight that you said that I couldn't agree with more is talking to different communication styles, especially leadership. I think we as Pred fighters are not the best at that. And you don't really get training on that. I mean, you can seek out books and training and, and blog articles and podcasts, et cetera, on that. But there aren't that's something that I think a lot of us are bad at. I was horrible at it when I first started, I'm still learning, but knowing how to custom customize a message to different types of people, depending on where they are within the business. You know, you mentioned earlier, like the people that are highest up, they, they can't know the details of everything. So knowing we like to live in the details a lot of times. So knowing how to kind of bubble that up in what they need to know, what the risks are, if they come up, what are the alternatives to what you're proposing? And just taking the emotion out can be so much helpful than just, this is a problem. And if you don't do it, you know, that the chicken little style that I used to do. I think that's a skill that we all need to work on no matter what level we're in, because that can always be improved upon as well. And especially as fraud is becoming a bigger problem and the economy is getting more uncertain, it's more important than ever for your company and your leadership and other teams to understand the importance of fraud prevention, as well as how you can actually help the customer experience. You can help sales go higher. You can help reduce losses, et cetera. Yeah. So more than ever, it seems like a lot of people are tired and stressed out. We were talking about this just for a minute before you recorded. There's been layoffs and just especially so much uncertainty in the economy and job stability, et cetera. I know we've both been there at different points in our careers. And so I wanted to ask you what advice you would give a fraud fighter mid-career or even earlier in the career that is feeling run down and or scared and uncertain about the future of their career. You know, yeah. a light, easy breezy question. Easy, yeah. And the <laughs> same thing I'll say, hopefully, is more like practical <laughs> or like a clear message. It's a wheel fluffy in the beginning, but like seriously, like I think people who go through this, myself included, you feel like you're alone and you're probably mm. like the only one through this, but like every single human being had like stressed out in uncertain times. And it's not to minimize your feeling, it's to the exact opposite. It's to make you feel like 
yeah, what you're going through is what normally happens. You're not some oddball that like made a million bad decisions and they don't have their their shit figured out. Apologies for cursing. But like, it's good in that sense. It opens, it's helped me to kind of reflect on that. And then practically more like if you were in a hurricane of frustrations and emotions and I'll try in that moment to not bury yourself further by putting a ton on your plate, do whatever is that next right thing. And that could be investing and pouring your time and energy into learning new things, to meet, meeting new people, develop new relationships, kind of whatever's within your kind of grasp. Because like, you're not going to get that next job right away. You, you got to take bit by bit. And it's, it's, it's slightly cliche, but like there's people who do that. And each day, not everyone's great, but they're trying to learn more, to advance, to figure out what are the new opportunities? Who can they learn from? Who can they network with? And then there's people who are holding on to grudges and making excuses and investing their time into loads of negative energy that makes zero growth. And it's tempting and it feels good sometimes. And it gets like, I throw in myself plenty of pity parties, but it just ultimately, if you want to grow, it will grow you anywhere but the other direction. Now, if you go the other direction, are you going to get that new job or advance in exactly when you want? Maybe not, but like at least you're on a path and you're, you're taking productive actions. And so... Yeah, hopefully that helps and know that I, I've gone down the bad path before as as many of us have, right? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, I long time ago when I first started Fraudology, I did like a two part, two episodes on like my career path. And I was just super honest about, I wouldn't say all of my screw ups because I probably am always learning even in the past, right? Even if it was eight years ago, it's like, ooh, I made a mistake. I might learn that just now. But I think oftentimes people have assumed that my career is like this shiny thing that I've never had a problem or stress. Oh my gosh, that couldn't be further from the truth. So definitely I, I wanted, my purpose of doing that was because I'd heard some of you will be like, well, I'm sure you haven't had this. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I have. And I feel like I'm doing you a disservice if you don't think that, you know, I haven't had really challenging bosses and toxic work environments and burnout. And some of it I've done to myself, you know, and all that stuff. And I think like a couple pieces of advice I have on this are when I'm feeling uncertain, and this is something I just started doing about a year and a half ago with COVID because there was just so much uncertainty. And for me, I don't know if I'm a recovering control freak or just a control freak, but I like to be in control. I think we all want that, even though in reality, we're in a lot less control than we want to think we are anyway. But I started writing down, and this is just something I made up myself. I don't know, but it helps me. And if this wouldn't help anyone else, like maybe think of what would help you. For my husband, it's like riding his bike or going for a walk. He gets a lot of clarity. For me, I just started writing down everything I was certain of at that moment. I wasn't certain, you know, where my business was going or anything like that. Or in some cases, I wasn't certain where the next check was coming from. I wasn't certain about the future of my country or the pandemic or anything else. But I was certain that every at the time, thank goodness he's better at this now, but you know, that every night or every morning around two o'clock in the morning, my dad would wake me up to take him to go pee. I was certain that my daughter was going to make me laugh sometimes. I was certain, you know, and I, I some of them were like that. And some of them were like, I'm certain that I'm I'm going to have to pay taxes next year. Just they could run the gamut. But for some reason, that really helped calm me. And then the other thing I recommend is to take action. If you're feeling kind of stuck and meh, do something that makes you feel like you're taking action. Whether that's, my husband has done this a few times, even though he's been at the same company for almost 20 years, there's been a few points where he's just been like, I'm just kind of stagnant and not, and just not feeling it anymore and not really feeling motivated. And he's worked on his resume. And he's reminded himself, oh, yeah, I've done a lot. And he has a resume if he wants it. He'll look up open positions in his field just to know what's out there and not even apply. I know a couple of people who will write their resignation letter. And if they feel like they afterwards, they're like, oh, no, I don't really actually want to leave. Then they'll know, Okay, I need to bloom where I'm planted, as my grandmother would say. But if you write that resignation letter and it feels really damn good, then maybe you need to make the steps to get to the point where you can actually send that resignation letter. So those are things that work for me. Everybody's different. But for me, taking action and feeling like I'm not just stuck or staying there is really important. Yeah, um, that's like with the next right thing, you have to be taking action. And yes, just don't overwhelm yourself with it. Like right. the next act, get a new job. It's like, no, let's start very small. And take some steps. And yeah, I completely agree with the action. And then additionally, many people are realizing that where they are or what they're doing now is contributing to that stress and exhaustion. I had a few conversations like that recently. What's your advice to people listening, you know, who may be struggling with the ultimate 
question of should I stay or should I go? And I'm trying so hard not to sing it. Right, Sorry. Good. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no exact answer here. It's a personal question, but the biggest thing I think is there's a difference between I'm in a tough spot. I'm trying to work through some adversity, but we should learn how to do that. It's builds resilience. There's all kinds of good stuff there. And then I might versus I'm in a really bad place. It's damaging my physical and mental mm. health, you know, and where that line is and for how long all that stuff is unique, but like, it's not one or the other. It's not like I need to push through it because that's that builds resilience and you got to be tough and I'm going to, it's got to push through this thing or, well, that got a little hard. I'm getting out of here. You know, like, so it's, mm. it's, you got to kind of make those, find out where that line is and beyond just damaging physical mental health. It's like, what do, am I enjoying? Am I happy? Am I, is this kind of what I want to be doing? And it can be scary to make that next step. But in that case, you got to lean into that anxiety, lean into that adversity, because once you're past that hump, it's much brighter on the other side. Yeah. I'm so glad you just said all of that. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's such a difference between having a bad day and needing to stick things out and not just quitting after one challenge and hitting your head up against the wall and the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and not expecting different results, right? And I've been in that situation twice, especially with in full-time jobs before I started working for myself. And I have still been in that situation in a client perspective a couple of times, but thankfully I'm they're a little easier to get out of, you know, to make those decisions. But I found that I tended to try to make things work that just couldn't and just wouldn't. And whether that was because I started off on the wrong foot and I made a mistake that couldn't get past or that people already made up their minds about me or whether it was just a super toxic environment and no matter what I did and I cared too much and I tried too hard and it that particular incident where I just kept trying and trying and I burnt myself out. I still have health issues from that time because I would not stop and I wouldn't. And so there's a difference between tenacity and just being plain stupid. And honestly, me taking myself out of that situation was one of the best things I could done for myself as well as for the company because I was kind of distracting because I was, I don't know, just where I was at. And I kept maybe calling out the same things over and over again. Just to use one example, there was somebody who I was pretty much doing their entire workload. And I kept saying that over and over again, but didn't feel like that was heard. Once I left, I was informed by the top person, by my old boss, essentially, that within three weeks of me leaving, it became very apparent that that person wasn't doing anything and they let them go. And I could have gone really like, I, yeah, no kidding. But me just taking myself out of the equation made it so that I was no longer kind of the one getting the attention and that the attention was put on that person. So I think I let it go and I completely like just to me, I don't hold grudges. I let, you know, karma or the universe or whatever you believe in just kind of work stuff out. But that was a good lesson to me that sometimes like tenacity isn't always a good thing. Yeah. yeah. But yes, but you also have to know. Yeah. So it's like that. Do I say, do I go? I think I titled this section of my questions, bloom where you're planted versus GTFO, get, get the something out. And that's just, I think it is a personal decision to everyone, like you said, but sometimes you can take some perspective and ask the people around you too, your partner or your family, your friends who see you often, like maybe they're seeing this take a toll or honestly, one of the best things I did was there was somebody who knew in another situation I was in, had insight into the team I was a part of in a different way than I did. And they just said, you know what, you you're not going to, I know you and, but they're not going to ever listen to you. They've made up their mind. And so you really just need to give up. And I'm like, no, 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 I can change it. I can do it. No, I think the best thing for you is just to move on. That was really hard to hear, but I was so grateful. And I'm still very grateful to that person to this day because it impacted my career so much. And they were right. I was making myself miserable, just trying to make something work. Yeah. So the last question I want to leave on, and I think it's probably one of the most important ones that we've talked about today is, you know, you just went through this process recently of making a job change. And so I think you're uniquely qualified to provide some wisdom on this. What do you look for in a prospective employer? And more about the brand, the culture, people, the job description, or do you just apply for the roles that are available and that you qualify for and hope for the best? Like, how did you make a decision to join Sion? And what was it that really helped you make that decision? Yeah. Yeah, it depends on where you're in your career. Initially, it was mm. it was posted and available. Right. I didn't quite, uh, you know, the job market wasn't great. I was kind of reverted back to a bit more of an entry level role. So I had to 
kind of swell my pride a little bit. And, and sometimes um, that's what you have to do, right? I think that, like, that's really good. Right? Like, there are some jobs that, you know, are going to serve a purpose for a short amount of time or they're going to get you to that next thing. I think something about like, I can't remember how I said it, but something like you can either turn a rock or maybe somebody else said this, but you can either look at a rock and see it as a stepping stone or an obstacle. And so maybe that job was a stepping stone or you had no idea that by going to radial and taking that entry level job, that was, you found your career, like you found your industry, you found what you liked yeah. and then it provided for you and your family. And you have contributed so much to this industry for the next 10, 15 years. So you just never know. Yeah. And you don't, you don't know enough at that point. So, and if it's right. enough, you want to break in, great. Now, if yes. can, when you have more of an option to look at all those things you just said, brand, culture, people, job description, I mean, people are going to value things differently. People value all the things you just said. They value salary. Where does that play in? And they got to make choices what means most to them. I would imagine people in culture is pretty high on people's lists. And like, and if it's not, maybe you can, you can tolerate a bad culture for a little while. Again, it's, it's each person, but that that's important to me. That was important to me. It is important to me. I think probably as you get older and less ability to tolerate certain things, or you have certain views that are more important to you as you, as you age, then that, maybe that becomes more important, but that, that was, that is, and that was really important to me, not just for, for the CN move, but when I moved to, to feature space and of course the company and what they do and their trajectory and how successful they are, like you want stability, you want, you want success. Everyone's, it doesn't, it's not just about the money aspect of it, but you want to be in a company that's growing and thriving and you're contributing to that and whatever type of company it is. So that, that matters. And then obviously the job description, if you're, if you're lining up something and you're like, you're trying to stretch it and you're like, oh yeah, but I can do that. And you're kind of fudging some things that you shouldn't, shouldn't be fudging. It, ultimately, you could get the job, but it, it might not be the best fit. So make sure the and don't be afraid to reach, right? Like, so like, if you could learn some of these things, and you're just that that's okay, but but make sure it, it's in line with either what you know, what you're good at, what you like, or what you're willing to learn. And and that I mean, my most recent role, I, I think that is a good example. It's kind of a, a head of front strategy and education, but kind of a hybrid role of a few different things. Uh, I, and I and I like that working across different departments, being have having the flexibility and ability to travel and go to conferences and speak and talk to crowd fighters and hopefully educate, but also learn from them. Those are things that I wanted to do more of, and I get to do that. So yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it, and then hopefully that is somewhat helpful to others. I think that's perfect. And and I think you're right. I think it should be a combination of, of what you've done, of what you love to do and, and what you enjoy. What's that zone of genius for you? And you can also get into your zone of genius outside of work for sure, right? I have friends that are musicians, right? And they can't really make money on that, but they do that at night or on the weekends and they have a day job. So, but for someone like me that needs to, and, and I think you too, be really enjoying what you do. I think finding that combination of what you've done, what you want to do and what you love to do, and then what you can grow into. Because I do think a lot of, <laughs> there's some people that apply for jobs that they're not at all qualified for. And then there are other people that file, apply for jobs that they're, they meet every single criteria. Well, they, you know, just, you, you never want to be so you just, you've done everything right. So it's like finding that in between and and finding that balance. And you know, I think the last thing I wanted to ask is just, I really do appreciate working with Sion and, you know, they are the sponsor of the podcast right now. And not only because of that, but also just because I genuinely want to know what was it about Sion specifically in the provider space? Because I know, I'm sure you hmm. had several options of companies on the vendor side with your skill set, with your experience, with your zone of genius. And you are such a good representative of the companies that you work for and really built a name for yourself with about fraud and with feature space and, and all of that. So what was it about them that you really wanted to work with and represent? Yeah. And funny enough, we, one of our first articles was Sion, was with Sion back in 2017 with about fraud. So I didn't know Tommy and, and Ben said then, but they were on my radar. And so I an advantage of having about fraud, I kind of get to talk to different vendors and see how they're kind of coming in and growing. And, and Sion had been growing like crazy the past couple of years, especially in 2021. And I liked their their social digital footprinting. I thought that was unique as far as a product and, and data that I did not see out there. And having unique fit in the market in our market is important because there's there are a lot of vendors. So the product, the growth, 
And the people, Jimmy, who hired me, our chief commercial officer is every time I interact with them, just was a, was a good guy and, and straightforward. And, and that's the kind of same feel I got from, from the founders, Tommy and Bensa, who are 10 years younger than me. So it's, it's cool. Like, it's cool that they're, they're taking this and kind of running with it. And this is their entrepreneurial venture and something that I thought had, had a lot of value and, and, and opportunity. And, and then I would, the role they were looking at kind of being what they're talking about is like kind of like a megaphone for, for what they want to be talking about and learning, learning from the community too, is kind of fit in perfectly. I, I love engaging with people and talking and hopefully listening. And that's a big part. And how we grow the solution going forward is important to listen to the community because you can study as a product manager, you can kind of understand to a certain level and read, but you kind of really need Need to listen to your customers and the and the community to understand what's actually the, the, the biggest pain point and is that something your product can improve on? Absolutely. And I will say that I'm pretty critical of vendor blogs and resources. Not all of them are super helpful to people doing their jobs, but Jimmy and, and the team there and you are included in that. I've done such a good job. There are some really good resources on the blog. So I hope that people don't discount the fact that they're quote unquote vendors and not not use them as a resource. Speaking of learning more about fraud prevention, and I also agree that, you know, I really appreciate when I had Tamash and Ben's on a few months ago, they really are humble and they want to learn even more than they want to help. Or I mean, they want to help just as much, but like they want to learn even more than they want to teach is I think what I meant to say. And they really are, they've, they've built a really good team. You are definitely on that list, Jimmy passionate and positive. It's hard not to get just a little more hyper and amped up when I talk to him. And I don't know how he has so much energy because he has triplets uh, and another kid and he's chief commercial officer of a startup that just got significant funding. Like, I don't know how the guy does it, but it's just a remarkable team. And I'm so glad. Yeah, I was really excited when you confided in me a little earlier than the rest of the industry got to know about this job change for you. And I was also equally excited for Sion as well, that they got such a catch. So just congratulations to you on your career path. And thank you so much for this awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for having me on. And I like normal. We, we talk a ton and we'll probably go over time limits, but hopefully it was valuable to your audience. Yes, I I am sure that it will be. And there was just so much to talk about, but thank you so much for your time and expertise. And I will make sure that there is a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes if anyone isn't already connected to you, as well as the About Fraud link and connections to Sion as well. So thanks again, PJ. I hope you have a good rest of your week and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.